So today we're going to conclude this whole Love Strong series, and uh, some weeks I've done a better job than others than tying together this, this verse, which is part of it. Today is an easy one, uh, where Paul says to the Corinthian church, the weakness of God is stronger than the greatest of human strength. And that weakness of God that Paul's referring to is the humility of God, which we don't often associate with God, but God is quite humble in the way that God inter I mean, the fact that God interacts with humanity and the Jewish understanding of things is a remarkable thing and comes alongside to want to have covenant and relationship, a real relationship. That's weird in terms of all the other theologies that were reigning in the day which kept God up in the sky somewhere. Uh, the Jewish understanding of the divine of this greater other we call God was one who draws near to us, not to kick us in the teeth, but to love us, to restore us. That's the character and nature of God. It's humble. It's, it's different than what was there before. And today in Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to take a look at, you know, this very, very familiar story. And I just want to say I appreciate that some of you are not readers, and so it's difficult for you to follow text and really understand it. And with uh, the dawn of so many forms of media that some of you, the best way that you uh, can really get stuff is through, uh, through video interaction. And so luckily, uh, there's some good actors out there that have done a good job uh, with this. So I've got a video for you. Make sure the volume's up on that uh, so that you can really appreciate the story probably exactly as it took place so many years ago. It was the time of Passover in Jerusalem, and excitement was in the air. It was a time of celebration and remembrance. A time where God's people looked back to how they'd been rescued from slavery in Egypt and looked forward with hope to never being slaves again. Amongst the festivities, news of a man called Jesus had reached the city. Some said he was a teacher. Others said he was a troublemaker. Still more said he was a prophet sent by God to help his people. Whoever he was, Amazing stories of miracles and healing seemed to follow him wherever he went. And now he was coming to Jerusalem. Maybe this was the time of rescue they'd been waiting for. The streets of Jerusalem were rammed with people, desperate to get a glimpse of this new conqueror. Some began to roll out the red carpet, and others laid their cloaks on the ground. <laughs> Others grab leaves from the trees, ready to wave on cue. <laughs> Songs began to bubble up in the crowd. The people could not contain their excitement. <laughs> and then it happened. Here he was, Jesus. But something was wrong. There was no army. There were no weapons. Oh, man. Jesus wasn't even on a horse, but instead a high roller pink four by four. Oh, no. no, no, sorry, sorry. I meant to say Jesus was on a space rocket. Uh, no, that's not right. Who wrote this script? Oh, okay, I found it. Here it is. Jesus was on a lowly donkey. What kind of king rode a donkey? Many in the crowd were confused. Some were even angry. This was not what they had expected. But little did they know, God's chosen king was now amongst them. The world would never be the same again. Hosanna in the highest. 
Jesus has come. So that's cool. Uh, the kids are seeing that video today too, so if they act really confused about what happened on Palm Sunday, eh, now you know why. Uh, so the questions we're asking today, uh, I'm asking who are you, primarily who are you in the crowd of Palm Sunday? Uh, who would you associate yourself with back then and who are you now? And who are we welcoming and following? And I, I pose that as a present reality question, not as something we've done but something we do. Who is this Jesus that we're, we're talking about and welcoming into our lives and choosing to follow? And then, of course, that leads us to how does that shape you? So let's just see what the text is. And I've got different artwork that sort of depicts this. Uh, this comes from Matthew 21, 1 to 11. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what, the, what had been spoken through the prophet Zechariah, uh, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I, I made that word humble, just stand out there all by yourself to see it. Uh, this is love strong in action. This is the weakness of God is greater than the greatest human strength. Chooses to come humble. And of course, you're familiar with this. Uh, and the people would have been somewhat familiar with uh, Zechariah. And some people wonder, well, how did the guy know um, you know, the guy with the donkeys. How is, did, is this some kind of magic thing, you know, that Jesus kind of foreknew there'd be donkeys there? Probably not. Probably he prearranged it because he was in Jerusalem hanging around or getting ready to, to head in, and he already made uh, the recommendation or had somebody else uh, do it on his behalf. So that's why he knew where the donkeys were and that it would be okay. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And who are you? Uh, this particular painting um, is titled The Choice. And on your right side, what you see is a king. So you see a crown uh, up there. Um, interestingly, the artist uh, gave this particular uh, character, Jesus, blue eyes, which is fascinating to me, and then is holding uh, the globe, kind of what you would see uh, the queen do, right? Uh, uh, sort of representing all of his power and what he has control over. But then on your right, on your left side, the other way to see it, on his right side, then you see something different. He's got a crown of thorns with blood coming down uh, his forehead. His eyes are closed. He's been beat up a bit, uh, and he's holding something else in his hands. And I'm not completely sure, but I think it's probably frank, fragrant, uh, fragrant uh, vine plant kinds of things, uh, maybe reminiscent of the perfume he was smelling because it was dumped all over him just before. 
Who are you and who is this? And to help you get your brain around that question and understand, it might be helpful for you to understand who was in that crowd that day. Because there's a weird thing that happens. You've got Jesus coming in and everybody seems to be all on board with Jesus. Hooray, hooray, it's Jesus. And then like five days later, uh, a crowd is yelling out, crucify him. What the heck? Are people that fickle that they just change camps? Is that the explanation here? And the reality is it's probably more simple than that. You probably have two different crowds. So the first crowd that we have are the fans of Jesus with some other people mixed in. This is the Passover. And so people are there from all over, uh, all over the diaspora of the Jewish people, which spread everywhere pretty much. Uh, and you had people from different groups, which I'm going to describe in a second. But the ones who are making all the noise are the Jesus fans. So naturally, they're the ones who knew to show up at the right time. They're the ones who knew how they wanted to get on board with what Jesus was doing and laying down palm branches. Uh, they knew he was going to come in some humble fashion. They probably even knew it was going to be a donkey, the, the real fans, and putting their cloaks on. That's, that's right out of the, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And it's a sign, as, as Pam mentioned, of humility not a war horse. But there were others in the crowd, and by the way, by the time you get to Friday, the people who were in that crowd uh, were probably asked to show up uh, by the rulers of Judaism in Jerusalem, which are called the Sadducees, and probably some zealots uh, from up in the Galilee region uh, who were there for Passover because they're disappointed. So who do we have in the crowd on Palm Sunday? Well, we have the Jesus fans. I'll talk a little bit more about them in a minute, but you certainly had the Sadducees who were there because they pretty much just existed right around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, and they ruled the temple of that day. Uh, they were uh, advocates of the law. Uh, they were also advocates of make the most of your life right now because there isn't one after you die. So eat, drink, and be merry while you've got it, and if you can work out a better deal for yourself in this life, Go for it, because this is all you got. In fact, uh, if you dig up a little bit, um, these leaders of the temple lived really large uh, in the city of Jerusalem uh, back in the day. Uh, I mean, even pretty good by our standards, like, like they unearthed a 2,000-square-foot home. Now, you think about that back in those times in the city. <laughs> How much would a 2,000-foot uh, place in San Francisco cost, right? So you think about that, and now you're a religious leader. How did that happen? Well, lots of moving and shaking and political deals. That's how it happened. And they were uh, in cahoots with Rome. Rome allowed them to rule over the temple uh, so long as they kept the Jewish people in line. Unfortunately, the Sadducees uh, had uh, hurt their privilege a little too much, went too far particularly with capital punishment. So what I'm telling you is, is the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem at times got too violent. So Rome told them to stop being so violent. <laughs> Can you believe that? But that's, that's the case. And so when we see the Sadducees interacting with Jesus at one time, asking, should we stone such a person? Well, that's kind of where that's coming from. And they knew that stoning at that time uh, at the hands of the temple was illegal. That's a story for another day, which I've talked about many times. So you had the Sadducees there, uh, adherents of the law, make the most of your life now, a little bit me, myself, and I, 
uh, and no hope of afterlife. And probably not a lot of hope for much of God breaking into this life now either. In the crowd also you had uh, regular run-of-the-mill Pharisees, which was another major branch of Judaism that day. Jesus was a Pharisee. These people were um, also strong adherents to the law of Moses, uh, so they're people of the book. Uh, but different than the Sadducees, they had a mystical, mystical bent to them. So they kind of assumed that God would break in at times if they were really lucky. Now, it had been a long time since people had collectively seen God break in much at all. In fact, they call that intertestamental period that we call uh, that 300-ish years between the last book and what we call the Old Testament and the first book of what we call the New Testament, they call that the, the period of silence because God seemed to be silent. And then Jesus shows up and you see all this God stuff going on. Well, the Pharisees would be more open to that because they had mysticism in their, uh, in their vernacular and looked for it in their experience. And because they had a mystical experience or a mystical openness, it also made it easier for them to believe that there was something beyond the grave. Now, believe it or not, about 300 years before Jesus was born, uh, most Jewish people did not believe there was any life after death. Uh, it never really dawned on them. Uh, if anybody, you know, lived after the grave, it would be like rulers, emperors, um, maybe a lot, well, yes, Elijah. There was something uh, for him. But for regular, ordinary folk, you live, you die, that's it. Uh, you're just resting uh, in the place of the dead uh, for the rest of time. So once you got to Jesus' stage, though, they started to have an openness to it. And a lot of their desire for hoping that there was an afterlife was born out of the issue of justice because they recognized that God was not saving them in the way they hoped to be saved, which was by a military uh, coup overthrowing Rome and putting themselves back on top so they could be in charge of their own land. When that didn't happen, when they kept being uh, taken over by one empire after another and severely hurt and abused by those uh, regimes, they started to imagine maybe justice is not going to happen in this life. Maybe it's going to happen in the next life. That's when God's going to bring justice. And that's when the very idea of life after death in the Jewish world started to, started to come together. By the time he had Jesus around, there was great confidence in this. Uh, there was great confidence that God was going to act at any moment and that the Messiah, the anointed one, Messiah and Christ are the same words, just different language. It all means anointed one. The anointed one was going to lead the people and it was going to be an overthrow and it was going to be great. The Pharisees were looking forward to that time and wondering when it was going to happen. And then you have another group in, uh, in the crowd that day called the Zealots. Now, there was a book that was written several years ago, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, made, made a lot of money for the authors called uh, Jesus the Zealot. Uh, some of you may have read it. And the author maintains that Jesus was himself a zealot. I disagree, uh, partly because of what we see in Palm Sunday. But the zealots probably had some rootedness in the Pharisaic tradition, but they were looking for a very violent overthrow and thought that it was their responsibility to start that overthrow with their own militaristic uh, leanings. So grab your pitchfork, let's go for it. There were messiahs popping up everywhere, or at least people who were claiming to be the messiah, and calling for the charge. And many attempts were made that we don't know much about, except we know this, 
that with every attempt for a Messiah who claimed to be the Messiah, God's anointed one, to take up our pitchforks and let's go after the Romans, thinking that God would come alongside and come behind and pull off another exodus like he did so many centuries ago. Every time that happened, they got walloped because pitchforks and shovels against the military machine of the Roman Empire was no match. There's no chance. And so they got squashed again and again. And in their minds, they're just thinking, well, the right guy hasn't shown up yet. But we're going to keep we're going to keep our arms ready at a moment's notice because we know the end is near. This idea of the apocalypse was fever pitch at that time. They were sure any day this was going to happen. This was even after Jesus' ministry. He's writing to his, the churches, and he's saying, like, about marriage. He's like, well... Good grief, if you can't control yourselves because of your passion, then go ahead and get married. But if you can, don't get married like me because, because Jesus is coming back any moment. And so if you can just hold out, it could be next Tuesday, right? That's what they thought all the way through the first century, which is problematic, which we'll get to. And then you have the Jesus followers who know the Pharisaic tradition, who are hearing the voices of the zealots, who are aware of what the Sadducees are teaching in Jerusalem, and they're choosing a different way. And the different way they're choosing to see is the way that Jesus was teaching, which was unique. Jesus was known for messing with scriptural interpretation based on his own hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a fancy word you can impress your friends at lunch with. It just means how you understand what the Bible says and how you appropriately apply it to today's age. And when he looked at the Scripture, he knew what most scholars were saying. But I think because of what happened right before his camping trip, what happened at his baptism, I, I'm maintaining, I'm putting out there, I think he had a Satori moment that blew his mind where his understanding of God shifted from whatever was popular and whatever he'd been trained to all of a sudden, boom, it becomes Abba, loving God for everybody. I think he had one of these moments that he saw the, the unity of everything and the connectedness of everything and everyone. He saw God differently, and it radically changed his life. And he couldn't talk along the same lines. He couldn't behave in the same ways that he did before. And so he starts teaching in different ways that some would call heresy, challenging authority, challenging the great theologians of old. And he's saying, you've heard it said this way, but I'm telling you this from his experience. He's going places he's not supposed to go to, like leper colonies, uh, because he sees that God loves them just as much. They're not cursed by God. They're equally loved by God. And he, and he sort of affirmed this by when he went in, there would be healing that came with him and through him for those people. He didn't care if he was messing with people that uh, were highly questionable, uh, like prostitutes. And he showed love and grace and dignity to them, even tax collectors, people who were seen as traitors to Judaism. He extended love and welcome and invited them to follow. This is radically different. But overall, what we can say about this Jesus is that he was no zealot because far from saying, pick up your pitchfork and let's take on Rome, 
He was completely going the other direction. He was about the weakness of God. He was the guy that taught in his stump speech that he went around and talked about so much. He taught how to do nonviolent resistance. You know why he was convinced that nonviolent resistance is the only way? Two reasons. One, because he believed this was the way of God. This is the weakness of God that is greater than the greatest human strength. But second, he knew that if they tried violent resistance, it wasn't going to work. That's the way the world plays the game. And that always fails. There may be a temporary moment of peace, meaning the absence of conflict, but it's just a matter of time before it swings back to conflict and blood all over again. That is not what brings lasting peace. The only thing that brings lasting peace is shalom, which is humble, which is nonviolent, which is what Jesus was all about. Remember what happens Thursday night after this Sunday that we're talking about. Uh, he's praying in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, and before the crack of dawn, um, temple soldiers come uh, to arrest him. And what does the apostle, the, the disciple at that time, Peter, do? He pulls out a sword that they carried around, I don't know, just bragging rights or feel protected or whatever, and he whacks off one of the soldier's ears. What? That's nice. It's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, and what does Jesus do? He tells Peter to put away the sword. And he reattaches the ear. <laughs> Pretty interesting. What does this tell us? He's not about violence. There were some people in that crowd, I think probably the zealots, I think everybody who knew something about Jesus was wondering what's going to happen here. And when they saw him come in on a donkey, they're still thinking, okay, well, this, this is not what we were hoping for. But maybe it's, maybe it's a trick. Maybe it's just to put the Romans off the scent. Because then once he gets into the city gate, very soon thereafter, uh, according to the synoptic gospels anyway, uh, he makes a mess of things. He goes into the temple area where there, there's a money changer, sort of like an exchanger of money. If you've ever done currency exchange, if you've traveled internationally, these places are all over. Some give you better rates than others. So when he went there, uh, he saw these money changers who were flat out ripping off the people who were there, making money for the temple. And particularly what upset him was that the poorest people were really getting ripped off. So what does he do? He does a kind of nonviolent thing with a little bent of violence to it. He flips over the tables. He makes a mess of the whole thing, which is a way of saying, today's a new day. This is bonus day for everybody. This is a jubilee, which had deep theological uh, rendering to it, where we cancel the debts because now nobody knew who owed what and how much was everybody's. All of a sudden, the people who had all the money didn't have the money anymore, and the, all the ripping off uh, kind of reversed all of a sudden. And now the poor people are scrounging up to get their Benjamins <laughs> off the ground. You know what I mean? And so at that point, the zealots are like, well, this is what I'm talking about. Maybe there's hope here. But as the week wore on, it became more and more clear that Jesus was not going to be the kind of Messiah they hoped for. And so they turned. And the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin which is the ruling council of uh, all things Jewish in Jerusalem, led mainly by Sadducees, they worked with the Roman government to make sure that he got killed. And he did. Get rid of them because that keeps the peace, which keeps them in power and keeps Rome from inflicting more damage on everybody else. That's the lay of the land back then. And these decisions for those Jesus followers on that day 
uh, was no laughing matter. For them to follow Jesus and to shout Hosanna and be a part of that, they knew that in their allegiance to Jesus, they were ticking off everybody else. The Pharisees, who they were coming from, but now distinct from, the Zealots because they were peaceful, the Sadducees because those are the rich people in Jerusalem. There was another group called the Essenes that probably were there too, but they were kind of a reclusive group. Uh, and probably uh, their influence was just very different uh, for the Jesus people. It's primarily those three that are there. My question is, is who would be there today and who would you be in this thing? Which one would you pick? Because believe it or not, even though we so, know so much about Jesus, I think it's the same people in the crowd. Quite distinctly, even in our time. But they probably aren't going to look like this picture so much. This is probably a better picture. On the left, you've got Rambo, who's ready to go to town. And on the right, you have Gandhi, who says, my life is my message. Which one of these more reflects the Jesus that you want? Which one of these more reflects the Jesus of history? Which one of these more reflects the Jesus that you're hoping for which one of these pictures informs your worldview and your ideology? A really weird thing happened uh, after uh, World War II. Uh, and you can read uh, this. Uh, Lauren put me onto this book as well as so many other uh, voices in our kind of frame uh, called Jesus and John Wayne. And it's a very powerful book that talks about how how did we get to where we are? I, I shared a very long teaching with you back in the fall on the politicization of Christianity. That book mainly talked about politics and who was shaping what along the way. And it was fascinating to me, and I wanted you to know uh, what I discovered in that book. Jesus and John Wayne kind of does the same thing, but they're looking almost exclusively on the theological voices, the religious voices in American history, not so much the political, although there's some overlap there for sure. So after World War II, the boys get home, and, every, and those soldiers are absolutely celebrated because of their heroism, as they should be. Then uh, the Soviet Union is formed, and they declare, we are an atheist nation. At that point, America goes on about a 10, 15-year campaign to make sure that everybody in the world knows that we're not atheists. So it's in the 50s uh, and the 60s that we see things like, in God we trust, show up on our coinage. And it's a direct reaction or response to the Soviet Union. And when we pledge our allegiance, one nation under God, that phrase under God, that's when that came up and that's why it came up. In response to the other world superpower who said we don't believe in God, we were taking a stand. Well, we're a nation under God. We believe in God. And every religious leader in America was for it. Rabbis, imams, pastors and priests, all for it. It's a good thing for us to be faithful people. But the more people got influential positions uh, with politics, there was a push to make the nation distinctly Christian in its religious orientation throughout the 1960s and beyond. And that's when the other world religions, including uh, Christian pastors, in fact, the dominant voice within uh, Christianity with the Christian body were saying, no. Do not 
try to make America a quote-unquote Christian language that goes against our founding documents. We're a nation that's free of religion. Religious expression is absolutely uh, protected, but as soon as we say we're a Christian nation, we've got problems because there were campaigns to get Bibles read in the school and studied in the school and prayer in the schools, and these Christian leaders are saying, well, which version of the Bible are you going to use? And who's get, who gets to write the prayers? Who gets to lead the prayers? And all of a sudden, the government officials realize, while that might win some votes to get Bible and prayer in the school, it's deeply problematic. You understand why? <laughs> because how the Bible's taught and what's being said in those prayers can make all the difference. Well, another thing that also started to happen, particularly in the 1960s, was a particular branch of Christianity uh, really believed still in that militaristic Jesus. You might say, how in the world could they do that? Well, because the apocalyptic teachings of, that are attributed to Jesus, I'm not sure if he really believed them. I'm not sure if he really said them as witnessed in the scriptures, which is okay uh, for us to question that. Uh, but without a doubt, there's still an apocalyptic presence in the New Testament saying, well, when the Son of Man comes again, he's coming with a blade and he's going to do some serious slaughtering. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep get to go on to heaven and the goats on to slaughter. It's going to be a bloodbath. Some people interpret the book of Revelation that way. Rivers of blood, 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 blood everywhere and God is all behind it and Jesus is for it. Now, what I suggest uh, there's a, there are different ways to approach Scripture, and we're on a progressive way, which means that when we look at a text, we don't believe that God controlled the quill. Uh, we see the, the fingerprints of the Bible authors all over the text, but it's not just the fingerprints, it's also the worldview. So even though Jesus was absolutely, without question, a pacifist, there's still this hope that God is going to restore justice. And the only way that even the earliest Jesus followers could think of was to go right back to the same apocalyptic vision. So if you're waiting for Jesus to come on that white horse uh, with a sword to wipe out the world and all the bad people in it, it's going to be a very long wait. In fact, I would ask you just to consider this, that if God is waiting for the world to get just bad enough to do that, don't you think we did that already? Don't you think that if there was ever a time when God would say enough is enough was under the pogroms of Hitler, wiping out two-thirds of the Jewish population globally? <laughs> don't you think God would have said after the crusades ah oh, these clowns are not getting it let's just get this over with maybe their vision is wrong 
I'm not saying that God's given up on the world, hardly. What I'm suggesting is that Jesus actually was getting back to a different way of thinking about things, which was trying to uh, help us get back to shalom in every person between them, in themselves, interpersonal shalom, but connection with God, connection with others, uh, communities together, races together, LGBTQ, BIPOC, the whole thing, seeing each other as one, and the creation itself. This is in contrast uh, to the other side, which the other, the other voice, or the other very large voice, it's not the other side, it's not binary, but, but the, this other larger voice, they go so far, Lynn was lamenting this, she was, my wife who runs Kids Crossing, she was lamenting, uh, looking up Earth Day stuff, because you know what some of the children's books are saying about Earth Day? They're saying, well, it's good for us to take care of the earth and plant stuff, but we need to remember that God, God one day is going to wipe out the whole thing anyway and give us a whole brand spanking new one, so we don't really need to worry about it all that much. That is a real theological position that is held by many people. Who cares about global warming? You think it's warm now? Wait till God brings his fire. That's the idea. I'm not kidding. By reading the text in an over-literal way that does not bring other voices to the table to help us understand what is being communicated, appreciating the metaphors that are all over Revelation that is not supposed to be read as a literal uh, prophecy of what is to come. And part of this dynamic that was created was now that you have a large voice of Christianity that's saying, we are a Christian nation. For them that meant when we go to war, we are not just going with the flag of Christ, we are going with the flag of the United States as a representative of God's chosen. The United States became the new kingdom of God, the new nation, the new God's people, the new Israel. Along with that came a very interesting shift that is still with us that the image of a humble man coming on a donkey, everything about him, his teaching, his demeanor, his words is, I'm all about shalom. But around the 1980s, a shift happened where they wanted a militarized Jesus. And I'm not making this up. Who looked more like Rambo. And with it, we began to glorify militarism as a Christian thing in the world because, after all, it's God's army now, not just the United States. I want to be crystal clear. In no way am I ripping on the military right now. Understand me. But what I hope you'll see is that there is a dangerous connection here when we marry our theology and our belief that God, God has now ordained the United States as the new Israel, which then necessarily blesses our military and necessarily excuses it from wrongdoing because it's done in the name of God. Do you understand why it's a problem? I believe we need a military. I believe that there are, I believe that whenever we have to resort to violence, our first thing should be to rend our clothes and weep that somehow we failed to communicate shalom well enough to the world that now it's ending in bloodshed. 
I think we should support those, those military and have highly trained people to get things done fast and to minimize the amount of bloodshed that's going to happen because that's part of the reality. But, but that's a far cry from saying, look at our Jesus Rambo. Do you see the issue? Now, some of you have come into Crosswalk from that louder tradition. And some of you may not have even known that you had a tension. <laughs> but there is one. And if we've been in the United States for a very long time, that tension's there whether or not you've been in the church or not. Because it's so a part of the fabric of our country. And my question is for you. Who are you? And who are you wanting to follow? Rambo or Gandhi? Now you may say, oh, couldn't you find a nice picture of Jesus up there? <laughs> you know who Jesus, or you know who Gandhi got his ideas from about how to stand up to the empire of England? Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? And what does that mean for your worldview? What does that mean for how you think about your life? Are you, uh, if your vision is of Rambo, doesn't that necessarily mean that you're going to go to definition of a true godly man as a brave warrior, courageous in every way, don't take any gruff, man's man? Isn't that kind of the picture? Doesn't that also join with it a, a, a patriarchy that makes sure women stay in their place? Because they should under that ideology. Do you, do you see what happens with this? It was even suggested uh, to one of these uh, loud voices uh, back in the 80s that, um, you know, we needed a, we needed a more manly Jesus than, than what we have here with Gandhi. Uh, that the, the Gandhi kind of Jesus was kind of a, a wuss, you know, to use their, their language. And it was deeply troubling to some. But I want to tell you something uh, about courage and manliness. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a pastor. And I've been a pastor a long time, uh, 28 years. And I've been here for 23, 24 of those years. And I've been in my office uh, with couples that are having marital difficulty. And I have seen men who probably in that moment feel courageous as they raise their voice, as they raise their shoulders, as they puff out their chest and say incredibly hurtful, harmful things to the one they say is their beloved. I've seen it many, many times. And they feel very manly and courageous when they do. Barking their orders, letting their voice be heard, sharing what they think is their feelings, which is really just their anger. You know what I see when I see that? Cowardice. You know what courage looks like? I've seen this happen too. When I see those same guys filled with bravado, when I see them weep because they recognize what an ass they've been to their wives or their girlfriends. When I see them begging for forgiveness because they know that their bravado and their machismo and their manly manness, their Ramboness, just utterly fractured their relationship. You know why you don't see that image of men very often? 
because that's where real courage lies. And maybe we have a cowardice epidemic on our hands because we've defined it differently. Which Jesus are you following? Who are you? And who are you welcoming and following? And how does that shape you? Maybe Palm Sunday should be celebrated every day. We do, whether or not you know it. Who are you welcoming into your life every day? Who is the picture of your God? Is it this humble one riding on a donkey? Or is it Rambo? And how does that change how you see everything? Let's have a moment of quiet together, and then we'll uh, have a closing prayer. Hey, I bet some of you have ticked off today. Holy Spirit, can you help us identify that today? If we're, if we're ticked off, I will dare say, God, if we're pissed off by something I said today, God, can you just help us come to grips with that? If somehow I've offended something in us, can you just help us be honest with that and not sugarcoat it, but to say, God, I'm angry with Pete today because of what he said about whatever it is you're upset about. Can you give us the, the license, the courage to admit that we're mad about maybe something that I said or something that is reality here today so that we'll at least be honest. Spirit of God, can you help us? Can you help us really see ourselves? See our beliefs and ask the so important question of where did those beliefs come from? Why do I see things this way? What has influenced my worldview? God, can you, by your spirit, at least give us enough courage to ask the question so that we are no longer riding on autopilot thinking we've got it straight? God, as we venture from this place, can your spirit go with us? And as we move through another week where there just might be another school shooting, there just might be more political turmoil, there just might be another hint of wars and rumors of wars somewhere, there just might be another immigration crisis, there might be another economic challenge can you be with us in those moments? And as we react, can you invite us, woo us to pause and ask the question, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? Where did the, that idea come from? Who is Jesus? And who do I want to be now? Deep questions, God that you've asked every one of your followers to consider. May we be, may we be the ones in the crowd who raise the palm branches and throw down our cloaks, who recognize you are the prince of peace and that to follow you means to pursue peace with peace towards shalom 
with shalom. May it be so. I invite you, my friends, to open your eyes and say this uh, rendition of the Lord's Prayer with me now to close our time together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who art here and everywhere, thy divine commonwealth come, thy will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound, modeled after you. Strengthen us for the work we're called to. Amen. May it be so. Thank you so much for coming. The food, I think, will be ready almost immediately. God bless our food and our fellowship together. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you later. And if any of you want to chew the fat on progressive Christianity or take a swing at me for today's talk, just meet me down here, and uh, we'll talk about it. Thanks for coming.